Welcome to Moneymaker, the podcast that gives you the tools to enrich your life in every sense of the word. I'm your host, Nelly Galan. Let's get started. Julissa, thank you for sharing your story with me. You have such an incredible story. A lot's happened in your life. Yeah. Tell me, where did you, where were you born and where, how did you grow up and where did you grow up? Yeah, I was born in Mexico in a small town called Tasco Guerrero, which is three hours south of Mexico City. Um, and then when I was 11, my parents brought me to live with them in the U.S. They were already living here since I was three and they would travel back and forth. And that's very typical of many kids. So who were you living with in, in, in Mexico? In Tasco, I lived with my two sisters and our nanny. And then my sisters went to uh, study at a different school than I went to go live with my grandmother. So for so many immigrants in this country, your story is very typical, right? Where mm -hmm. the parents moved to the United States to make money and send money home and the kids are left, right? And we understand it, but what does that do to your being when that happens to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I felt really abandoned, right? Even though I logically, I knew that the reason I was, I could go to the school I went to and I could eat the food I was eating and have the vacations I had was because my parents were in the U.S. working really hard. And at the same time, all I wanted was for my mom to be home so I could give her her Mother's Day gift, right? And so mm -hmm. um, I, I felt really lonely when I, was, when I was a kid. And especially when my sisters left to a different city, then I didn't have my sisters anymore. And then, and then I really felt like I'm like really alone in this world. So a lot of abandonment yeah. issues. So what happened that you did, you know that you all decided that you were going to come to the United States and you went to Texas, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so my my mom always has been this incredible entrepreneur and businesswoman. Immigrant. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so she, um, you know, despite the fact that she never even graduated from high school, she really had really big dreams for her and for and for us and so she made the decision in the mid 1980s to start importing sterling silver from her hometown and that's what she would do she would bring silver jewelry and sell it all across the US um, at trade shows so that's that was the impetus to and then you know I think a lot of immigrants family do this the dream is always come make a lot of money move back to your country, right? Build a house and, and move into that house. Except so that's for the ones that are, that are in political, like me, like me, that I'm from Cuba, we couldn't go back. So then the political exiles don't do that. But most immigrants think yeah. we're going to make the money here and go back go and back. live well. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the, that's a lot so of times. So then what happened that, she, that you came? So um, you know, when my sisters went to live in, in a different city to go to school, I was, I was by myself with just my grandmother and I was really acting out. I started to get into a lot of trouble at school. Um, I've always talked a lot and so I would get in trouble at school all the time for talking during class or um, not wanting to, to be sitting, sitting down the whole day. And um, my parents were just always being called into the principal's office, which was really difficult for them, right? Because they lived in the US, so it wasn't easy for them to come deal with all the trouble I was getting into. Um, and I think for them, it was just that having their 11-year-old daughter growing up with a nanny was not acceptable anymore for them, right? And um, and they missed me, and I, and I had a little brother. I had a little brother who was born here in the U.S. Um, and so my parents, especially when they had my brother, they could travel even less than they could before, right? And so I was, I was only seeing them once or twice a year. 
So the dynamic of the family was complicated. Super complicated. I mean, we've, this is kind of really makes me so sad, but I don't think we even have a single picture of all of us together. Like, I can't remember the last time when my sisters, my dad, my mom, my brother, what well, we were all in the same place. Well, and I think, I think it's, this is important to say because I think people don't realize that most people do not have a linear path or a linear life. Yeah. And so when we look at people in this country and we judge them, we don't realize that, you know, we have obstacles and circumstances yeah. that are beyond our control. Yep. So you came to live in Texas at 11 with these kind of stranger parents and a little brother. Yeah. Um, and your sisters didn't come at the no, time. No, they didn't. Now, can you explain to me why you were undocumented if your parents had visas at yeah. that time? So I also came with a, with, a, with a tourist visa. I came to the U.S. with a tourist visa. Um, and everything happened really quickly when I was getting in trouble and my parents were just going to bring me to live with them. And I don't, I don't think they ever thought really, really into the future, right? Like what happens when, um, when she has to go to college? Like, we, you know, we weren't thinking that they far ahead. That they far weren't ahead. thinking that far ahead. Mm -hmm. They were just thinking our daughter's getting into a lot of trouble. If we don't bring her to live with us, we'll lose her, right? Like she'll be like this degenerate child. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like we have to bring her to live with us. Um, and I, and I enrolled in, in, a, in a, in a private school. So when they brought me to, to live in the U S I enrolled in a private school, um, using my tourist visa, but then that visa expired when I was 14. Right. And so that's when I became undocumented. So they could have, if they had thought things through, they could have done a whole procedure and had you, you know, brought in in a different way. Perhaps. But the, the, the truth is that Getting a student visa is really difficult, mm. and you have to show a certain amount of financial uh, resources in order to get that student visa, which my parents weren't, you know, they weren't rich. They didn't have that kind of financial resources to show that um, that they that they could afford to send me to one to college here, for example, right? And once, and this is the important part, is that once my visa expired and I had already been living in the U.S. for three years, then going back to Mexico to renew my visa was like impossible because at that point I had already broken the law, right? right. I had already, I had already misused my tourist visa as an 11 year old kid. So here you were, like you were really, you know, kind of somebody doing, going against the law at 14. Yeah. Like at 14 I became. And you know that and that's in your psyche that you feel nervous. Yeah. I mean, I think. I think it's important to say that I don't think people realize when they meet us, all of us, what we've been through to get to the starting point that they're at, right? That we've gone through a lot and that kids, you know, that I remember being in school and, and, the, and the nuns would say to me, you know, this is this, you wrote this thing like you're too old, you know, you act like an old lady. And they don't, and I go, well, you don't know what it's like to grow up the kid of immigrants and being an immigrant yourself, that you get very mature very quick. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because you know a lot of stuff that maybe other kids aren't exposed to at that age. Yeah. So at 14, are you cognizant of your situation? You know, I, I yes and, and no. Like, when when I found out that I was undocumented is because I wanted I wanted a quinceañera, which is like, <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's really like, uh, especially in Mexico, like, like, I, since I was three, I wanted a quinceañera, right? And, and my sisters have both had this like amazing, beautiful quinceañera parties. And 
since I was three, when my when my oldest sister had her quinceanera, I dreamed of of mine, right? And so, um, that's that's when my mom said, "Well, you can't actually go back to Mexico because your visa expired." Oh, because you wanted to have a quinceanera in Mexico, in Mexico. like them, because yeah, like them, Mexico, and with my deal. family, Correct. and you know, with all my cousins, and um, with with the friends that I still had there. So I was like, "We should, we need to start like thinking about we need to start thinking about this party and." Um, and that's what she said, you're undocumented. But but all I heard that night when she told me this was that I can't have my quinceanera, right? I didn't, that's what I was worried about. I wasn't worried about, what do you mean my visa expired? Like, I didn't really know what it meant. I didn't really know the consequences of being undocumented until it was time to go to college. That's when when I had I had to come face to face with the fact that that I was undocumented, that I was in this country illegally, and that that was a really, really bad thing. So, did you ever get your quinceañera? No. Not even in Texas? No, no quinceañera. Oh, so that's a trauma. <laughs> <laughs> Total trauma. I think, like, every birthday party, I try to throw myself, like, a huge birthday party to try to make up well, for the fact to, that I We're going to have to throw you a quinceañera for your book. Yeah. <laughs> You know that's a big deal. I yeah. get it. That's a, that's that's painful. It is. Yeah. And because... you know, I think that that's um, when you when you talk about the fact that people don't know all the things that you've been through. Like one thing that I realize is that some things, when they're lost, they're lost forever. You can never get them back, no, no matter the amount of success that you might have after. There are some things that you can just never, never get back and never well, make up. But there are. I mean, even in childhood, like. How many people skip developmental things because of, again, not having a linear life? And you're right, that never comes back because you're never going to be 15 again. Yep. You're never going to be 11 again. And so there are markers in your life that, that just poof, right? Yep. But you keep going, and then you go, you, you, you're going to college. And I know you were a really good student. Yeah. And I know from what you ended up doing that you were very good at math. Yeah. Which I always say, you know, I say to everybody, math, math doesn't lie. Math is the key to everything. Exactly. And I, I wish people would encourage uh, young women that math is so crucial in your life. So how great that you were math oriented. Yeah. And, and it was sort of, um, when, I, when I first came to live here, I didn't speak English. Right? And so I felt really dumb in class because I would fail open, open book test because I just didn't know the language. So the thing that I really hung on to was math because two plus two is four in whatever language you speak, wow, right? See, and, that's so, very and so that's why I really gravitated towards math because I felt smart in math, right? Like it doesn't matter whether I speak English or not, like I can multiply and divide and add and subtract. And by the way, the things I was learning in sixth grade, I had learned when I was in fourth grade in Mexico. So I was like very advanced for math mm. when, I came to, when I came to live here. Um, and that's why I gravitated towards it because I couldn't understand any of my other, any of my other subjects. You're very lucky though that your parents had their visas because a lot of undocumented kids that I talked to grew up in a completely cash society um, where the parents never had, you know, bank accounts or anything like that. And, and I find that their math is very lacking mm -hmm. because they really never could understand. They don't understand, even though they're highly intelligent and go to Ivy League schools, don't understand the banking system, for instance, yeah. right? So thank God that you at least had a family that, you know, could live in, a, in this country with the system. Yeah, yeah, but yes, and I, I also think there is, um, you know, 
I have friends even now, or even my, my own parents who um, were good at math, but not necessarily good at their financial health, right? Mm -hmm. Like they, I think this, this notion of like saving and investing and uh, building wealth mm -hmm. is not something that was mm -hmm. that was taught to me or that for as much success as my parents had in their business is not something they did for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I saw that and because I saw that, I wanted to have a very different experience with money right, than, than, than they did. Like I wanted to have a different relationship with money than they did. So I'm curious, what, during this whole thing, you're getting ready to go to college, where are your sisters? My sisters? In Mexico. So they stayed in Mexico. So they're very different than you. Totally different, yeah. They had a very different life experience. Yeah. Wow. So you then start applying to colleges. Yep. I apply everywhere. I and apply. and were you thinking at that point, did you eat, like, were you one of those kids? Because, like, my parents didn't know Harvard from community college. Were your parents savvy that way? And were you savvy that way or not? My parents were not. I mean, my, my mom did always say to me that education is your salvation and education is your way out. And, and she put everything mm -hmm. behind that, right? Like everything she did was to make sure that I was going to a good school, that mm -hmm. my siblings were going to good schools. And that was her goal in life was to make sure we were educated. Um, but she didn't necessarily know the nuances between like you said, Harvard and community college, right? But I was really lucky because the schools that I went to, we had really amazing guidance counselors. I had really amazing mentors. I was part of different groups and organizations that really did teach us about those differences. Um, and, you know, life at home wasn't always the best. Um, and so I had this idea that I wanted to go to a school really far away from Texas, like really far away from home to just get away from everything that was going on at home. Um, and so I, w I had this like illusion that I could solve all my problems if I just got into a really good school. And then the heartbreak of getting rejection letter after rejection letter was terrible. And it wasn't because I left out my SAT scores or because my GPA wasn't high enough. It was because I didn't have a nine-digit social security number. And that's why I was getting rejected. That's devastating. Yeah. Because you know that you're competing at a higher level than most of the kids, and yet, and did you figure out that that's what it was? Yeah. You did? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's when I, that's when I really, that's when I realized being undocumented has some really big, awful consequences. And it was, it was hard to realize that in the land of opportunity where everything is possible, where hard work is rewarded, that those things didn't apply to me anymore. Well, especially in your case that your parents have papers and you're like the odd man out, your little brother's legal. Yep, he was born here. And that must make you feel like, wow, how did I get this short end of the stick, right? Yep. And so at that point, do you feel shame around that? Do you feel like you have to keep it a secret? Yep. So you, and is that the moment that you go, oh, I'm less, like something about me is less than? Yeah. I mean, I knew since I was, since I was 14, my mom um, and my dad would, you know, really instilled in me, like, this is something you don't talk about. And it was absolutely a big source of shame, a huge source of shame, something that you didn't talk about um, at all. And then, of course, getting rejected from all the colleges, even though I had the credentials, I was absolutely qualified for any of these schools, but I wasn't eligible, right? And so that absolutely made me feel like, well, why am I less than anybody else? Like, I, why are my accomplishments worth less than the accomplishments of someone else, 
like, and, and, and that's when you start to realize I am different and my life is going to be different. And, um, and this term that people throw around illegal alien makes you feel like you are less than a human being. It makes you feel alien. Yeah, like you're from Mars. Yeah. Like I didn't, I didn't feel illegal. I didn't, I, I felt like a, you know, I felt like an 18 year old high school senior who was looking forward to going to college. But that's not, that wasn't the reality. I could feel however I wanted to feel. The reality was that I was undocumented and that that meant that there were opportunities that I would never be able to have. So what did you do at that point? I, um, I, this is when like I created this little mental bubble that I would retreat to and where I would think that everything's gonna work out. Like something will happen and everything will be fine. So I kept applying even though I kept getting rejected. I kept applying and see what happens. Um, it's almost like you disassociate from the reality. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, it's too painful yeah. to, to think, well, what am I, I'm not going to go to college. I'm, yeah. I'm just going to go work at, you know. Yeah, you sort of, you, I had to force myself to live in this alternate reality where everything was okay. Um, and, you know, the really devastating thing about my senior year in high school is that my mom had this terrible, almost life-ending accident uh, my senior year in, in, in high school. Um, and she was in a coma for um, a couple of months, and we didn't know if she was going to wake up or not. And so all of a sudden, my mom was always my biggest cheerleader, and she had this way of always figuring things out. And so even though... I was getting rejected, like her telling me we'll figure this out gave me a lot of hope and, and that we would figure it out, right? And then and then she gets really sick and she's almost dying and now I'm like, well, how am I supposed to figure this out on my own? And my mom is like potentially dying, right? So it was um, it was a really difficult, difficult year. Can I ask you a tough question? When When all this is going on, do you sort of feel like how could you know this isn't fair like how could they re like why do i get stuck with all these obstacles i mean as a young woman you, you know maybe later you can analyze it but how are you feeling about that i mean how are you feeling about god about you know since we're also we're raised so catholicos you know yeah how are you feeling about your lot in life at that moment yeah um i i definitely felt like I'm the one, I mean, the, the thought that went through my head was, I'm the one that's going to have to take care of my mom. And it did feel a little bit like I'm the one who's going to have to be stuck taking care of my mom. And I don't know why I felt that way, because I had two older sisters, right? My dad and my rest of my family, but I very much felt like it would be my responsibility to, to take care of my mom. And it did feel, it did feel unfair. It absolutely felt unfair. Like... I've done everything that I'm supposed to be doing, right? Like yeah, I'm a good, good girl. girl. Like I'm, I've done, I've checked all the boxes that, that, that society told me I needed to check to move on to the next level, right? To, to, to keep going and pursuing, and pursuing this dream. Um, so it definitely felt unfair. And at the same time, that felt like God doesn't give me anything that I can't handle, right? Like if the, the things that he's, giving me is because he 
is gonna provide somehow and he's going to show me a way somehow. Um, and when my mom was in the hospital, that's really when I really re reconnected with God in some ways, right? That's when I um, started praying more than I'd ever prayed before. And, um, and, it, and, it, and it worked out. <laughs> your mom lived. My mom and is she's, and she alive and well. So your mom lives. ¿Y qué pasa con la escuela? What happens? Then the state of Texas became the first state in the U.S. to allow undocumented students to attend public colleges and universities, to pay in-state tuition, and to receive state financial aid. And that law passed a month after I graduated high school. So when I graduated high school, I had no clue. So you thought, I'm going to go work. Yeah. And, and yeah, I just thought, you know, I guess... So actually, it was going to work out for you after Who knows what's going to happen, but um, in the meantime, like, all I can do is just go sell funnel cakes <laughs> for now, right? Like, today, that's the only thing that I can, that I can do. Um, and then this law passed uh, a month after I graduated high school, and I called immediately the phone number that they had given on the news, and I, I talked to um, Senator Rick Noriega's assistant, and told her my story, which was kind of interesting because for so long I'd, I'd been taught not to say anything to anyone. And here I was just like divulging all this information to this woman I'd never met before um, and telling her whether, asking her whether this law applied to me. And it, and it did. And um, we were past the deadline of, of UT and I had gotten rejected from the University of Texas. So you the, the senator wrote you a letter and that's because you chose yourself you went and yeah spoke i mean i up. called and i said you know i i applied to ut and i got rejected but i graduated in the top five percent of my of my high school class these were my sat scores like this was my gpa i should have gotten in but i didn't and i didn't because these nine digit numbers but now i can right because you passed this law um and, and so they were incredibly helpful in, in helping me to go to college that year versus having to wait another year. So you were able to go year. to UT? Yeah, so like two weeks before I, um, two weeks before school started, we drove to Austin, found a dorm, um, and I was really super happy at that point, right? Because I could, I could go to college and now. And your mom but was better, so everything was working out. And my mom was getting out. better, but, um, you know, life has a funny way to pull the rug from under your feet whenever you're feeling like you're on top of, of everything. And um, even though I could go to college, I still couldn't apply for financial aid. I couldn't apply to scholarships. And there were scholarships that um, thankfully now are open to undocumented students. But back then, even if a scholarship was specific for Hispanic students, they still required you to be a permanent resident and have a social security number. So I couldn't apply to any of them. So you had to pay for everything as if you were out of state? No, I, I was still paying in-state tuition, but that was still too much. a lot more money than my family could afford, especially with my mom's medical bills now, right? So my parents made a really difficult decision that they would move back to Mexico so that I could use the money from my funnel cake stand to pay for college. And that was... Um, so wait a minute, let me get this right. They decided to move back to Mexico because they could live in Mexico for less money and get, make money there. And then you could inherit the business. Mm -hmm. 
and the money from the business. So you had to work while you were in college yeah. doing this business and the money from your business. So your parents really, had, even though your mom was sick and getting better, they really yeah, had to she, sacrifice. She required, um, my mom was getting better, but she, I mean, she had brain surgery, right? She had a piece of her brain cut out and she had to relearn a lot of things. She had to relearn how to walk and talk and, and use a spoon and her short-term memory was completely off. And so um, she had a lot of years ahead of her of recovery. And so my family in Mexico could really help, right? They could help take her to her therapy. And, um, and, and that's, that's the thing I love about Latino families, right? Like we help each other out. Like it's, it's, we don't ask a lot of questions like you need help, we're gonna help you. And my, my whole family in Mexico really rallied around helping my mom get better um, and really helping to support her and my brother. And, um, and, I, and so that was like, I didn't have to worry about that, right? I, all I had to worry about and focus on was now I have to do really well in school and I have to make all of these things that my parents have done for me worth something, right? And so, um, but it was also, it was really difficult because I knew that I was undocumented and I, I didn't know when I would ever see my mom, my dad, or my brother again. That's right, because you couldn't go there. I couldn't go back to Mexico anymore. Hold on, Moneymaker will be right back. Let's get back to the show. So what did you decide to study in school? Finance. Ah! Yeah. And how did that turn out? Tell me, you finished school and what happened? Yeah, so um, so this funnel cake stand that I had. Oh, that's right. right? So you were an entrepreneur. Yeah, exactly. Like f first, first year in college, I would take a Greyhound bus every Friday night for 90 minutes to go to San Antonio sell my funnel cakes Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And then Sunday night, I would take a bus back to Austin to go back to school. So like Monday through Thursday, I was like this normal college kid. And then Friday, I would become this like funnel cake, funnel cake and, and the reason you were in San Antonio is because it was more touristy? Well, that's where we had our spot. Oh, that's where we had, had our spot. spot. Yeah, we had a spot at the Market Square in San Antonio. Um, and as much as I hated the fact that like I couldn't have a full college experience, I also was like, I have money and and that's like all that matters, right? Like I can pay for I can pay for school and that's and and all in I those mean. years that you were doing that, did you just become very good at it? Like you knew how to make the most money out of it and you knew how to handle it? Yeah, um, I mean I've been selling funnel cakes since I was like fifteen, right, with my parents, and so um, it, it was it was really great. I mean it was really great business, right? Like I kind of had it down, like how much dough I had to buy and how much I had to charge to like really make a profit, how many funnel cakes I needed to sell in order to make to make um, money. Right? And so sometimes I, you know, at the end of the night, I would be like $3 funnel cakes because like all, all $3 funnel cakes that I sold would be profit, right? So I was like, I can sell them for $3 and like get this dough out of my hands. Um, and, and then, <laughs> God, and then the city of San Antonio decided they were gonna build a museum in the spot oh, where on. I had my funnel cakes down. So you had one obstacle after another. It really felt that way. We felt like... I feel like you're the movie The I'm Martian. Have you seen like, that movie? <laughs> no, I haven't oh, seen Oh, you have to see that movie. <laughs> that's a movie for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's how it felt. It felt like, okay. So like every time I thought I could breathe again, 
it was like somebody was just punching me in my stomach and blowing all the air out of me. And just when I thought, okay, I'm breathing again, then like, again, another punch. Um, and that's how it felt for a really, really, really long time. So when the city of San Antonio decided to build this museum, I was really kind of out of options because I couldn't get student loans. I couldn't apply for scholarships. And how could I get a job when I didn't have papers? Right? And you're alone. And I'm and alone. You can't go visit your parents. I can't go visit my parents. No one in the world knows what I'm going through. I don't even have a friend that I could talk to and and share how I was feeling because I had learned that you don't tell people you're undocumented. Right? Even though I had really amazing, wonderful friends in college, I couldn't tell them that I was undocumented. So I was going through all of this like really, really alone. And that's, you know, I really felt like my back was against uh, the, wall. the wall and, and I finally talked to one of my, one of my sweet mates, one of my roommates, um, and I had talked to her boyfriend before and some of the things he had said kind of led me to believe maybe he's undocumented as well, just from like certain things he said. And so I really went out on a limb and, and talked to her and she was like, yeah, he, he he's undocumented and talked to him and I knew he was working so I was like hey how do I how did you get this job and he said yes like I'm I'm undocumented and um, I'll hook you up with the woman who sold me fake papers and um, I knew that that was that I was breaking the law by like getting these fake documents and I also knew that that's the only choice I had Right? There was, there was, there was, there was no other choice. the The only other choice would be quitting school, moving back to Mexico, and that was not. I was not going to do that. Right, and so the only other option I had was to get fake papers and get a job and 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 pay for school, pay for school, working somewhere else. And so I got this fake documents. I didn't know if they were going to work because I... And what does it cost I, to buy fake documents? Honestly, I don't remember. Everybody asks me how much money I paid for them, but it couldn't have been that much because I didn't have that much. It couldn't have been thousands of dollars because I didn't have thousands of dollars, right? I had maybe a few hundred dollars that I could have afforded to pay for these documents. Um, and I had no idea when I, I mean, when I got them, I didn't know what a real social, I didn't, what a, I didn't know what a real green card looked like. So I had no idea whether my fake green card was like a good fake. And the only thing I had to go by was the fact that this roommate's boyfriend had used similar documents to get a job. So that's it, you got them and then you had to go see if they would work. Right. So you, what did you do, start applying for jobs? I, um, I had a friend that was working at a call center and was making like pretty good money. And so I asked him if he would um, like put in a word for me at the place he was working. And um, I did well in the interview, so they offered me the job. And then the first time I had to use these fake documents and give them to this woman at HR who photocopied them, um, I was really, really nervous like really nervous. I, I, I think when I left, I was super dizzy because I, w I had literally been holding my breath the whole time, not knowing if they were gonna work. But and, they and worked. Of course, the thought, is that, the thought is that she's gonna go haul you off to jail or something. Right, that if I get caught, then I'll get deported. 
And then it's all over. And then it's all over. Everything. Everything is over. So she accepted the papers. Yeah. And then you know and, and then I realized after I left after I left that um, that meeting with her to give her the documents was that her taking my documents was just a formality. It wasn't like they were scrutinizing me. And why would they? Right? Like why would they? Because when we think about undocumented people, we think about we don't think about the college student. And, and, and so why would anybody think that my documents would be fake when I speak good English, I have really good grades, I was going to a really great university? Why would anybody ever think these documents might be fake? Right, so she, it's something she would put in a file somewhere, right. but not really scrutinize. Right, right. But you don't but, know that. Right. Until you I don't, go through it. Un, right, until I go through it. So I, I, in a way, I sort, of, I sort of took advantage of the stereotypes that people have in their minds when they think about undocumented people, right? And I sort of, I sort of used this bad thing to my advantage, right? And to say, well, why? If, if, by the way, if anybody questions my papers, like I'm gonna sue you, right? Like, like you're being racist if you're questioning my papers because if I wasn't Mexican, you wouldn't be doing that, right? So. I used I used that to my advantage and got this job. I was I worked there for um, for a few years and I was sort of back to back to being on my feet, back to just focusing on doing well in school, applying for internships the next summer, just being a normal, quote unquote normal college girl. And then what happens after that? Well, then I you know I get this internship in in Chicago. Um, do well in it, then, you know, it's sort of, as we're getting closer to me graduating. Did your parents come back at all mm -hmm. at any of this point? They never came back? The, not, not until this point. They hadn't. My mom, my mom came um, to my college graduation. She did come from my college graduation, which was amazing, like incredibly amazing for her to be there and um, to finally be graduating from, from college, right, which was like a big dream of a big dream of, of all of us. Mm. Um, but certainly as I was getting closer to graduation, I was getting increasingly more and more anxious and more fearful because sure this papers worked for, you know, this this job, but would they work to apply at a job at Goldman Sachs? Would I pass, job. right? Would I pass the background checks? I I didn't know. I didn't know if if, if that was And was your work. goal at that time, were you thinking I really want to go work in, in the finance world. And what, what I was thinking, thinking, what I was thinking was this: what I was thinking is, if I can become really rich, then maybe it won't matter that I'm undocumented. Because if I'm really successful, why would anybody want to turn me away? I really had this idea that money could solve all my problems. Well, and let's talk about that because I think that's, you know, I don't think Latinos tend to think like that, right? And. But the truth is that this is a country that is built on money. Right. And the truth is that we don't think enough that money, it doesn't solve everything, but there are some things that it solves, right? So as women, we do have to think that we need to at least make money and have our own money. Right. And certainly in your path, you needed to make money to even get through the markers of life. So that's a very unique thought for a young woman yeah. that comes from our background right that i think would have only come under your circumstance right? yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I also, you know, I saw how much my parents struggled. I saw how hard they worked. And even though they worked so hard, they still couldn't make ends meet. And I, and I knew that I did not want to live through that. I knew that I, when I was an adult, I didn't want to have to worry about how am I going to pay the rent and how am I going to, you know, feed my kids. Like, I did not want to go through that. And I didn't want my little brother to go through that. And I didn't want my parents to always have to struggle as much as they did. And then beyond that, I just thought, there has to be a way for me to fix my immigration status. And maybe if I get like a really good lawyer, right? If I have all this money to pay a really good lawyer, I mean, and to your point about money not solving everything, it doesn't because it didn't matter how much money I had. There was still no way that I could fix my status because of the broken immigration system that we have. So money didn't solve all my problems, but it certainly helped. It absolutely helped. So you end up where? Right after, right out of college? Out of college, I I get this, I interned at Goldman Sachs. I in was Chicago? Asked, and I interned at Goldman Sachs in New York. New York. Um, I interned at Goldman Sachs, they asked me to come back full time, which should have been this like amazing source of... And so you passed the test of the HR? I passed the background check. Well, so people understand how complicated this is. When you go work, the banking system is the most regulated system in the, in the world. So mm. they don't just let anybody work in that system, right? To deal with money and massive scales. So somehow you pass that test. Yeah. I. Um... And how do you think that is in hindsight? How do you think they didn't... <sighs> so you know what I, th what I think it is, is that... Um... When you go through a background check, what they're checking for is your, it's a criminal background check, right? For a background check is to check whether whether or not you have a criminal background, and I and I didn't have a criminal background, right? So it 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 I mean it, it worked. Um, I I don't know how I really. These are the times when I can't help but like believe in God and believe in miracles because it really was a miracle that my f absolutely fake papers work to get me in the door at a place like Goldman Sachs. Right? And so the, the one thing, I, I, when I say this, I'm always careful to say that the papers is not, that, that's not what got me the job. Like that, that's not why Goldman offered me a job because I had a green card and a social security card. They offered me a job because I worked really hard the summer before when I was interning there. Right? And I stood out from other interns because not every intern was going to get a job. And I stood out, I worked harder, I got there first, I left the last person to leave. I wrote hand thank you written notes to the people I worked with. I asked smart questions, I, I did small things here and there to stand out and that's why I got a job offer, not because of my papers. I mean, the papers were just like, you know, the last thing you had to check in order to, to walk in the door. So you started this job in what capacity? So the job, the everyone who's straight out of college, everyone becomes a first year analyst. So I was so a first year analyst. I was, I was, I was doing PowerPoint presentations and, um, you know, all the all the grunt work that uh, that you have to do when you start out. But I think what's fascinating about it is here you are, this person with this secret, and yet you're learning bottom up the financial system of this country. And what, when you're learning all that, how people make money, how it's not that hard. You know, I always find that, I found that fascinating working for five billionaires. That I was like, wow, 
why do, why do we think that they know something we don't know? Right. You just have to go do it. Did you have that kind of aha working from the bottom up at Goldman Sachs? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a, it was a couple of different dynamics. One was it was a world that was so completely different than the world that I grew up in, right? Like the third day I was on the job, um, my boss took me, invited me to a, uh, a party he was throwing on his yacht. I mean, this was like, it wasn't like a little boat. It was like a big boat, right? And yeah, so we know I, this guy has I, many, many millions. Right, and we're like sailing in the Hudson with the Statue of Liberty in the, back, in the backdrop. And I'm like, I'm this like undocumented person who's not even supposed to be here. And like, here I am like shipping champagne, sipping champagne with like really rich, powerful people. And it was kind of crazy. Um, and it was that, and then there was this, um, this sort of like, when you first start out, and I know people think that you're making hundreds and thousands and millions of dollars when you work on Wall Street, but that's, you don't get there until many, many, many years of working there. So when you first start out, when I was a first year analyst, I was making $55,000 a year in New York City. That's not a lot of money. You are living paycheck to paycheck when you're making $55,000 a year in Manhattan. And recognizing, that was really important for me to recognize that even though I was surrounded by people who had a very different lifestyle than I did, I couldn't live that lifestyle, not yet. Right? And, and, and having to be very disciplined about, yes, I want to I dress for the job I want, not the one I have, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to go out and buy a $5,000 Hermes bag because I can't afford that. They can, I can't do that. And that took a lot of discipline to, to, to keep myself from getting sucked into the lifestyle right away. Well, and, and, and it's just, I don't think people realize that it's not just because you want to live grandiose, is that that's kind you of the You have to fit in. Right? But yeah, you have to fit in. I mean, you can't... You, you have to act as if you're yeah. them. You can't show up, you know, looking all raggedy. And at the same time, like, that... At the same time, I think sometimes you can take it too far. And and then and then I mean I was I actually was very fortunate that I couldn't get a credit card. I couldn't get a credit card because I didn't have papers. Wow. But I know a lot of friends. So who, wait a minute. So could you? So you could? Did you? Were you able to get like a bank account? So I um, yes, I was able to get a bank account eventually. Um, eventually, the the Mexican government. Um, convinced a bunch of banks in the U.S. to allow specifically Mexican immigrants to use a consular ID card to open up a bank account. So I, um, I opened up a bank account with Bank of America and like to this day I'm still a loyal customer because they let me open up a bank account you know, 20 years ago when no one, no one else would. Wow. So you're going up the ladder at Goldman. You're, I'm sure you're the best worker there. And in a number of years, you went from analyst, which is like a starting out position, to what? I went from analyst to associate to vice president. And what does it mean when you're a vice president? It, it, it means a number of different things depending on what group and what team you're in. Um, in my, on my team, I was very fortunate because when I started working at Goldman, I worked directly with a managing director. And it was just me and him building this business uh, of selling, of marketing derivatives to private wealth can clients. You, can, you can we explain that in very simplistic terms to people? What yeah, are so I, yes, I, and especially because whenever I say derivatives, people automatically assume that 
like I caused the financial crisis, <laughs> like the derivatives, um, and it wasn't those kinds of derivatives. Like we were not, we were not marketing um, mortgage-backed securities to private wealth clients. Mm -hmm. And it was um, we we structured this thing called structure notes that basically gave clients a lot of flexibility in how to invest in the market. Like they could uh, protect their principal or they could leverage their upside and make more money if the markets went the way that they wanted them to go. So it's not like working in a bank where you're getting, you know, you're, it is you're selling a product where you can invest your money. I mean, that's the simplest way to say it. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. But it's very, it's very lucrative because you get commission on that, right? Yeah. So it's an, you have the ability to make a lot of money if you're good at it. So what was that like for you? And, and what was that whole er period of your life like for you? I mean, it was, uh, it was exhilarating. It was also incredibly exhausting. I was working you know, 80 hours a week minimum every week for like three years, every weekend, two o'clock in the morning in the office every other day. It was a lot, a lot of work. So when you were the assistant, you were making 55. When you were the associate, how much were you making? So and I remember my boss, um, like one Thanksgiving, I didn't go, I didn't, I had, my sister eventually moved to San Antonio um, and I didn't go to home for Thanksgiving and my, and my boss said like, why, you, sh you should go. And I was like, well, tickets are like $700. Like I can't afford that. And he said to me, if you keep doing what you're doing, $700 won't matter to you. And I was like, okay, good. Uh, and so it really wasn't um, a straight line up, right? It really was like big bumps. So you like 55 and then you go from 55 to like 90. And then from 90 to like a 120, right? And like, or 190 and then to 300, right? So it, it really goes like in, in like, it's almost like a staircase. And, and just to explain to people why that is, is because you go from a place in the business where you are costing the company money to a place in the business where you are at the revenue. People that make a lot of money in the world are pre people that either save companies inordinate amounts of money or make money, bring in revenue for companies. So when you become on the revenue side, which is what you were, um, your, your bumps can be huge because yeah. it's based really on how much you bring in. Now, I'm just curious, and pardon my ignorance, but when you're selling derivatives, um, who's your customer base? Because I don't know that we know a lot of Latinos that are buying derivatives. Yeah. So who were you selling the derivatives to? Yeah. So Goldman, we had a very specific client base, and we were, our, our clients were people who were investing a minimum of like $25 million. Right, like who okay, had, hearing that, ladies? Who had like $25 million to invest. And so I, I thought we would have a bunch of um, like celebrities and, and sports, uh, sports people who would be our clients. And I was incredibly surprised to learn that most of our clients were actually business owners. Most of our clients were people who had started a business, who had sold businesses, people who were entrepreneurs mm -hmm. were our clients, not... You know, not celebrities because as much money as they may make after taxes and expenses, they don't have twenty-five million dollars of invest of of money that they can save and invest. That's right, and and I think for me that was also a big aha because when you come from our backgrounds, where our parents take money that they have if they save any money, it's in cash and a mattress, and 
you then go from that to people that the minimum to get in is 25 million or 50 million or 100 million. It's surreal. Yeah. So how are you dealing mentally with the incongruence of your two lives? Yeah. So for the most part, I had to keep everything really compartmentalized, right? I had to um, keep living in this little bubble of like, everything is okay. Uh, but there were definitely moments when my day-to-day -day life was so occupied with thoughts about getting ahead, thoughts about my next promotion, my next race, the next deal I had to close, the next client I had to go see, that day-to-day -day thinking about being undocumented was not necessarily always on my mind. However, there were specific moments that would bring it all back, and that angst and that fear that came from those moments lasted a really long time, right? So if I was called into my boss's office unexpectedly, I would think they know that I'm not really supposed to be here, right? Or the first time I got a letter from the IRS that said my social security number and my tax return didn't match and that they had sent the letter to my employer, I mean, that was terrifying. I didn't, and I almost didn't want to go to work on the next day because I thought if I go to work the next day, like I'm going to get handcuffed, right? Like I, I didn't know the kind, like, of, the, the kind of consequences that they, yeah, and, and, and it was, and it was absolutely, it was absolutely being in a panic, like constantly being reminded, right? And um, when I had to start traveling a lot for work and I had to get on a plane and all I had was my Mexican passport and I didn't know if that was sufficient to board a plane, especially in a you know, post 9-11 world. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And um, it was incredibly frustrating that there were times when I had, to, I had to hold myself back. There were opportunities that I could have pursued to, um, to work in London or to um, you know, travel to Latin America to see clients. And, and I had to pass up those opportunities. And, and that how would you, was how would you so do it? frustrating. How would, you, how would you even explain that? Well, this, I had to take this trip to London and um, I kind of just kept, like, I mean, we bought plane, I mean, like Coleman, I bought plane tickets, right, for me to go to London. And then I woke up like really sick <laughs> and couldn't take the plane. Um, no, so I had, had like a family emergency. Yes, I had to lie all the time. And that was awful because you end up telling all these tiny little lies that you, have to remember. that you have to remember and you have to remember who did you tell what to. And that's not, that's not a way to live. That's not a way to live. Just not. And, and at one point you realize like, I don't even know who I am because I don't know what's truth and what's not true anymore. Like, I, I don't even, some of these lies I've told so many times, I'm starting to believe them. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine. And, and during this period, what are you doing with all this money? Are you, are you thinking to yourself, I better pocket all this money away because I can get found out at any moment? Yeah, I was saving a lot of money. I was saving a lot of money. And then the other thing that was so frustrating is I can't even invest it. Like, I can't even put what I've learned to practice. To practice. I can't even take advantage of the fact that I work at the most powerful financial firm in the world, that I have access to investments that I wouldn't otherwise have access to, right? Like I can I can invest in the products that I'm 
structuring. And you know which ones are good. And I know. And you know how to make and, that money yeah, grow. But I can't do it. So you can't even use all the knowledge you have. So then there is a man in the story. Yeah. Um, the relationships were always really hard for me because it was really difficult to get close to someone and then not tell them about my immigration status, right? Because it was, it was this big secret. So how do you get really close to someone and still keep that from them? But then when do I know when to trust them to tell them this big thing? And then if I wait too long to tell them, then maybe they can't trust me because I've kept this big secret. And is the fear that they're going to reject you for that? Or is it the fear that they're going to think you want them for a reason? Uh, the fear that they might use this information against me somehow, mm. right? Like, what if our relationship ends? What if we break up and I make them mad and then all of a sudden they have this really powerful information that could totally destroy me? And that's awful. That's an awful way to think. It's an awful way to feel like you can't trust anyone. And um, when the, the, the man you're speaking about was so different because... Um, he was just really kind and understanding and um, he allowed me to take things as low as I needed to and didn't ask a lot of questions and um, I think that's why I could, you know, I could trust him. Um, and in the middle of all of this, you know, I was, I was really, in a lot of ways, I, I was the, a walking definition of the American dream, right? Like the, the level of financial and career success that I had achieved were the definition of the American dream. And um, all of that really crumbled when I got a phone call from Mexico to tell me my dad was really sick. And at that point, um, and I'll never, I'll never forgive myself for this because I didn't, I didn't get on a plane right away. You know, I debated the whole day in my head whether I should go. And if I went, how am I gonna come back to going just like screw everything. None of this is worth it. I've gotta be with my dad. Um, and by the time I made the decision that this isn't worth it, I'm gonna get on a plane, my dad passed away. And I, I never got to see him alive again. I never got to hug him. I never, you know, we had a, a difficult relationship when I was growing up. He drank a lot and um, we had just a lot of unfinished, a lot of unfinished business, right? We had a lot of uh, things to catch up on and to forgive each other for. And it was the most terrible thing that's ever happened. After my dad passed away, I thought, I can't be here anymore. I'm living in this really big, luxurious, amazing cage. And that's what it is, it's a cage. And I wanna be free, and I can't be here anymore. All while I'm like dating this wonderful man, and I finally, I hadn't told him to that point about my immigration status, and he couldn't really understand why I wasn't getting on a plane and going to Mexico to see my dad, right? Because why wouldn't I get on a plane and, and go to Mexico to be with my dad? 
And so I finally told him, like, <laughs> you know, I felt like I was, like, verbally, like, puking on him, yeah. you know, yeah, like, yeah. here is, like, everything, like, everything that I've done that you think might be weird, like, this is why I said this instead of that, like, this is why I couldn't, this is when you, like, tried to surprise me with a trip to, you know, the Caribbean, I was like, I can't go, like, like, th these are, this is why. And he um, heard me just making verbal plans for my return to Mexico. And I started making plans. I started thinking, um, you know, I'll stay till my next bonus so that I can have some more cash. And then there was this whole process of thinking, how am I gonna get this money to Mexico? Because I don't have a bank account in Mexico. I can't wire more than $10,000 because I don't have a social security number and, and because of, of banking regulations, you can't wire more than $10,000 without a valid US uh, issued ID. How am I gonna get this money to Mexico? So it was this long process of like, well, maybe maybe I'll take just suitcases full of cash. Like I, I honestly, that was a big, that was a, um, because I had to think that through, I stayed in the U.S. longer. If, if it had been easier to do that, I probably would have left. But before I before I, I left, I keep I kept telling him, like, I think I'm gonna go back, and like here's how I'm gonna do it, and like you're gonna have to come with me so that you can take some suitcases full of cash. <laughs> like, um, and then he like he like looked at me and he was like, let's let's get married. And I was I just I started laughing. I was like, you're you're being ridiculous, like, that's crazy. And then he like took both of my hands and looked at me and was like, let's get married. And I, I didn't laugh that time. And I said, okay, let's get married. Um, and I couldn't help but feel conflicted about it a little bit because I didn't know if I, you know, I, I didn't know it was the right time for me to get married. I, I, I was like, that was like the last thing on my mind. That's like always been the last thing on my mind. <laughs> like marriage and a man and like, that has never been like my focus, right? My focus has always been making money and being successful and like my career and um, my immigration status. But all of a sudden, like, you know, here was this like amazing man who was my best friend, who I loved, um, who wanted to marry me. And so we went to City Hall and got married. And because he's a U.S. citizen, I could, I could adjust my immigration status. And so you then, but it's a process too. It's a really long, cumbersome, expensive process. And this is where you know money doesn't solve all your problems, but it really helps because we had money, so we could hire. We could. We had to sign a ten thousand dollar retainer with a lawyer because my case was complicated because I had used fake documents. And the only reason I actually was able to adjust my status is because I came to the country with a visa. I never crossed the border illegally. And that makes all the difference in the world. So had I crossed the border illegally, then even if I got married to a US citizen, and even if I had US citizen born children, I would still be undocumented. Okay. I didn't realize that. And 40% of the undocumented immigrants in this country are like me. We came here with some sort of visa and then became undocumented. Not, you know, when we talk about the border and 
40% of us came here with a visa. So you go through this whole process and it's now... A long process. And how long does it take for you to be now documented? It took about a year to get my green card. Um, and we had to go through, you know, I had to go through, of course, like all the background checks and fingerprints and um, the, the, the sort of biggest part in this process was this interview that we had to, that we had to have. So to make sure you were really to make together. sure that we were like had a real relationship, right? So we had to show like pictures and they ask you all sorts of things about your relationship, when you met, what kind of books you like to read, why did you get married, like a bunch of questions to make sure that your marriage is, is like a real, a real marriage. Um, and we go through that whole process and I, then I get, I get my green card. I finally and what does that feel like? have this green card. It, oh, I like I would I kept holding the little like the the card. I kept holding it. And I kept touching it, and I kept being like, "Are you freaking kidding me?" Like, fifteen years of pain and struggle and shit for this, for this, for this little piece of paper. All of that for and this card. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. And then, but what do you do at your job? Like, do you mm -hmm. then go and say, I lied all along and here's my new card? Or you just keep going? I, um, And then do you keep, still keep paying taxes with the wrong number? Or? Right, yeah. I mean, this is, they're, they're, these there's are good this questions. whole, um, those are really great questions that I was <laughs> asking myself those exact same questions. Like, what do I do? It was like, I have a green card. Oh, wait a minute. I have a green card. <laughs> you know, like, how do I go through this whole process? And, um... The timing was couldn't have been more perfect because my fake green card was expiring like a month after I got my real green card. And I don't know what would have happened had I not gotten married and had this green card because I didn't know in New York where to get a new fake green card. And if I did get a new fake green card, it probably wasn't going to be the same number. All right, so I had no idea how it would have all worked out. Um, but I called, I called HR and I said, um, my, my, the green card I have on file is about to expire. I have my new one. Uh, and by the way, I also have a new social security number. And the woman who I talked to was like, okay, scan them, fax them to us. Scan them, send it to them. A few days later, I checked in the system and my new social security number and my new green card were in the system. Wow. Okay, so then... Time passes, but you have a big change of heart. You have a radical change of heart. Yeah. And what, and what happens? Um, it was a long process of, so my little brother came to live with, with, um, with my husband and I. Um, and you know, those, the first couple of years where we should have been focusing on our relationship, I was really focused on all the processes that I had to go through, get the green card, change the documents, bring my little brother to live with us in order for him to be covered by our health insurance, we have to become his legal guardians. And all of a sudden we went from being a 24 year old, newly single couple, newly wed couple to co-parenting a 16 year old kid, teenager. And that put a lot of strain in our relationship. And, um, you know, our marriage didn't didn't last, and um, 
there was just so many, so many loss, right? So much loss. Like my dad passes away, my grandmother passed away as well before I had my green card and I couldn't, I couldn't go see her. Then like this wonderful relationship with this wonderful man that I love is, is, is over. And I just felt really incredibly lost. And I felt like, what's, what, what was all this for? But instinctively I knew that there was a purpose and a reason. And it was my duty to go find out what that purpose was. But I wasn't gonna find out what it was working 80 hours a week in an incredibly stressful environment. And so I made the decision that I was gonna leave Goldman and I was gonna go find out. Um, and for the first time in my life, really ask myself, what do I want to do with my life? Because before that, every step that I had taken was just, a step to survive. Did the article come before that or after that? Way after. Okay. So you just decide, finally, you give yourself the gift of, I'm going to go inward and decide who am I. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, that, that, that year that I, that I was away from Wall Street, you know, I went home to Mexico and I spent a significant amount of time there. I I, try, I finally could travel and see the world because before I had I had the financial resources to go travel, but I couldn't go anywhere or do anything, right? So I finally went to um, to all sorts of places that I had always wanted to visit my entire life, and um, I thought I was gonna I was gonna launch a travel startup, um, and that fizzled, and then um, I had. I got a phone call from a former colleague at Goldman who was now at a different firm and said, I have this great opportunity for you. I think you'd be great for this job. So I went back to finance for two years and was completely miserable <laughs> because that's not where I was supposed to be, right? That's not, that wasn't my purpose. Um, pero necia, like, Well, it's, you know? <laughs> also, it's also, again, we're in these jobs and they're sexy and they're lucrative. Yeah. So there's a part of you that goes, estoy boba, I should be getting more money. and. You know, it's very confusing, you know? I, I've had those moments myself where I go back in a place where I know I don't belong. Right, yeah. So I was there for two years, um, and then the, uh, the company downsized and I got laid off, and it was the best thing that ever happened because I got laid off, I got a, I got a, um, I, I, I received a severance package, so I had, a, I had a few months of getting paid without having to go to work, and really wanted to use that time to, again, go figure out what, what is my purpose. Um, and around that time, I had also started a scholarship fund for immigrant students in New York City, regardless of their immigration status. Um, and it was the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life, just being able to help kids who are walking in the shoes that I was walking in 15 years ago, knowing that, that for, for a lot of them, were their only option because they don't qualify for anything else. And I probably should have known then that that, that, that route was how, where I was supposed to go, um, but, but I didn't. I didn't. Um, and when I got laid off, I happened to go see this film called Documented, which is Jose Antonio Vargas's documentary of his life. And we have a very similar story well, he of himself as, 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 as an undocumented immigrant. Right? He'd come when he was 12 and had a successful career as a journalist. And so we, there were a lot of parallels in our story. And so watching this film was like watching my life story 
on the on the screen and and that's when I mean that's when like all sorts of light bulbs went off in my head like I'm supposed to be doing this like I'm I don't know exactly what it looks like but I know that I'm supposed to be in this fight I know that I'm supposed to um, share my story I know I know that all the pain and struggle that I went through is supposed to be for something and that's when I decided that I needed to go share my story and I needed to use my personal story to change the conversation. So how did you do it? I, um, some of this was random, some of it was random. I, 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 I had been interviewed a year before for a story about young bankers starting nonprofits. And so I knew the reporter from that story. And then I reached out to him and I said, um, remember me from last year, I actually have an interesting story I'd like to pitch to you. <laughs> and uh, we had coffee and I told him, I told him the story and he was really excited to tell it. And he did an amazing, beautiful job of, of telling my story. Um, and it's kind of crazy to me how one moment in your life can really completely change the course of your life. So let's tell the, the audience. So he wrote a story for Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. And when that story came out, did you think it was going to be what it was? No. I didn't, I, I didn't totally understand the impact that it was going to have. I didn't know if anybody would really care, right? Um, but once the story, I mean, the morning the story came out, I, then I knew. But I think it's also fa fascinating how um, you also have, and I hope you hear this because I don't even know if you've taken this in, that you not only have the immigration self-made story, but you've had the opportunity that very few women and women of color have to really understand the financial system in this country. I hope you are investing in your products now and that we have to teach women that money has to be used to make change in this country. Because the truth of the matter is that this government works and change happens through people that have a lot of money that buy things or are philanthropists or, and while we are, you know, taking cash and putting it under the, you know, under the mattress, we can't affect change. Absolutely. And so this idea of self-made and making money on your own and not working for the system, but really getting wealth, not in a patriarchal model to become greedy like so many people we've worked for, but to really impact change in the world, in your family, in your community, and for generations to come, yeah. is very powerful. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I had to struggle with figuring out, okay, well, I don't, I don't work on Wall Street anymore. I don't have a paycheck coming in anymore. I absolutely want to affect change. And at the same time, I have to keep making a living. Yes. Right? And I have to be creative and I have to be smart and I have to be entrepreneurial about how I take this next step in my life and in my career. Right? And, and I think sometimes people, um, and I used to feel, I, I felt guilty about um, when people would say, well, you're really building a brand, 
right? Like you're becoming your own brand. And that really used to bother me. It used to bother me to think that here I am trying to, you know, help immigrants and, um, and, and care about issues that affect the Latino community. And it really used to bother me that people would say, you're building a brand. And now I've totally embraced it oh, yeah. because to your point, like we, with money comes power, comes influence. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely want to continue to have money and have power and have influence. And I want to use that influence to affect change in my community. And I can't do that if I'm sitting here worried about how am I going to pay my rent next month? Where is the paycheck going to come from? Well, and that's where you and I've talked about you know, so many women come to me that have had painful stories and they go, oh, I, I want to go run a nonprofit. And I tell them, you can't be a wounded healer. Mm. You know, you can't out of your pain want to save other people and you don't put the oxygen mask on yourself first and make money first. So for me, I see this as a, I feel very privileged to be at this crossroads in your self-made journey because you clearly have uh, accomplished so much and now you're at this part of becoming self-made in a different way. Yeah. And I think many women, maybe not in your specific way, can relate to crossroads in our lives. You know, whether it's, you know, a husband leaves you or dies, or your business gets disrupted, or you get laid off, or you have some tragedy that just marks your life in a new way, that we become self-made over and over and over again. Right, yeah. and it is a magical time for you to embrace fear, right, and to, but to also remind yourself that you can't be a wounded healer, right, and that you still have to go back to that puzzle of your life. Let me t let's talk about your tattoo. Yeah, I love that tattoo, and I don't even like tattoos. I'm like your mom. <laughs> yeah, my mom freaked out when she when she saw it. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a little freak <laughs> freaking out for moms that don't like tattoos, and I could definitely be your mom. What does that mean? Um, so. This tattoo means that everything happens for a reason, and it's it's our it's been my duty in life to connect to connect the dots. Um, the 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 stars there are molds I already had, like those are just molds on my body, and I've connected them because I I think it's I think everything happens for a reason, and we have to connect the dots, and sometimes we have to make things mean something. Well, you know, I I say I say something like that in a different way, but I say life is a puzzle that reveals itself slowly. Mm. But you do have to connect all the dots. I really believe that the whole finance world came into your life for a reason. Absolutely. And you can't let that go because you have this information that very few people have. And I know you're gonna do great things in your life because there is no coincidence that everything happens, you know, and, and, and it's revealing itself as it should. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Moneymaker is a production of Money News Network. Moneymaker is written and hosted by me, Nelly Galan. Our executive producer is Morgan Lavoie. Thanks for listening. See you next time.